I would like to acknowledge that the Teach Reach podcast is operating on the unceded traditional territories of the Matsky, Kwantlen, Ketsi, and Semihamu First Nations. Growing up on ancestral territory of the Taino people, and now as an uninvited guest on Turtle Island, I recognize the immense impact that the land has had on me. The land has taught me respect, reciprocity, reverence, humility, and responsibility. Through indigenous knowledges, I learned that the land carries stories, histories, medicine, and gifts that enable us to reflect and connect with ourselves and our communities. As a stories-focused podcast, I understand the value of investigating place and space to grapple with real-world issues. I seek to support the ways that indigenous peoples are using to protect their land and communities. It is my intention to continue learning how to properly honor and care for the place where I live. Welcome to Teach Reach, a podcast to explore human connections through shared stories. We teach, you reach. In this current culture, and for as long as I can remember, all we hear is achieving goals and completing passion projects. What I think is overlooked, it's how difficult it is to materialize a dream. Dreams are projections that exist at a low resolution, the birthplace of our deepest desires. The word cliche in English is a phrase or opinion that is overused and betrays a lack of original thought. One could equate it to a stereotype. However, as Shimamamanda Adichie says, the problem with stereotypes is not that they are not true, but that they are incomplete. As a French speaker, the word cliché has another meaning for me. In photography, cliché means negatives, what is brought to the darkroom to be developed into a picture. It needs time, but above all, darkness. The same can be said for our dreams. They are photos entered in the darkroom, where after a lengthy process, they are brought to daylight, fully developed. It might be cliché, but the photo and the dreams lie in the negatives. One of my most precious dreams has always been to be whole again, to have my story complete, to see my mother and my father happy, flourishing, and together. The voices of that dream have been resonating at a low frequency within me for a long time. My parents split up when I was 12 or 13 years old. The archivist in me remembers the disagreements that would mount into fights, the gentle looks that morphed to discuss, every syllable uttered during the fights, unable to fully grasp the gravity of the situation, but all the while aware that we would no longer be whole again. One warm morning of 1993 in Port-au-Prince, with the backdrop of a U.S.-backed embargo on Haiti, my stressed mother gathered us, the kids, in her bedroom. We sat at the edge of her bed, facing the broken mirror in her wardrobe. She was scared and weary. Yet, 
she mustered all her courage to tell us that her and my father would no longer be together, that all the back and forth, all the fights were now over, that all my dad's clothes lying on the floor would be gone, and she would do all she could to give us a good life. She insisted on telling us that dad was a great dad, but he could no longer be her husband. In the early 2000s, during a criminology class in university in Montreal, a professor presented stats on divorced households in Quebec and their impact on kids. He mentioned something that I never considered up until that point. When we look at divorce, the event itself is irrelevant. It's not the exact moment when people split up that is important. It's everything that led to it and its aftermath. My parents didn't split up in 1993. They did six years prior, in 1987, April 23rd, 1987. When my cousin Vanessa and her pregnant mother died, that day, April 23rd, 1987, I did not only lose my cousins and an auntie, I also lost my parents and the family that I knew. This is a flight down the deepest recesses of my being to explore the crevices of my existence, exhume the graves upon which I threw dirt. I am revisiting the pain from an old wound. The first conscious memory of my paternal family and their homes on the hills of Kafoufeu was on Friday, February 7, 1986. We woke up with the news that Jean-Claude Duvalier, baby duck, was gone. Confirmed just minutes ago that Duvalier has fled his country for an unknown destination. A spokesman isn't sure who was in charge, but CBS reported last night that a civilian military junta will take power. Good morning, everyone. It's Friday, February 7th. I'm Faith Daniels, leading our news today. A crisis day for two iron-fisted rulers. Jean-Claude Duvalier, president for life, fled from Haiti early today. The Duvalier reign of terror was over. I recalled my grandmother and my grandfather on their balcony. They had the biggest grin on their face. They were saluting like a first family on the step of a grand palace, waving to the cars honking everywhere. They were happy and relieved that after 29 years of fighting the dictatorship, it was over. They never thought that they would witness such a moment. That day... That house was just a revolving door, the place where people were never scared to express their disdain of the oppressive government became a sort of headquarters for an entire family. There has not been a bigger celebration than that one, and this house is also where Vanessa and I often played, up until her departure. We have a saying in Creole that says, Simon Pachitan babouche gamoun which means that kids shouldn't be around adults speaking. But it is where I always felt comfortable. Pretty much everything I know was by lurking around adults deep in discussion. The Gramun, Haitian adults, have a way to whisper which amplifies their secret conversations and makes them so tempting. I don't remember attending Vanessa's funeral. I was only five or six years old and considered too young to be part of it. Most of what I know after Vanessa's passing 
is through piecing things together. One thing is for sure, no one has ever sat me down to guide me through the immense pain that I felt after her passing. I was raised in a home where it was okay to cry, but that was the extent of the emotional expression. Our mind might forget events, but the body always keeps the score. After that event, something shifted in me. My gut remained permanently tense. I became terrified of large bodies of water, anxious every time it rained, worried if my dad wouldn't make it home on time. Every time we'd drive to my paternal grandmother's, I'd feel dizzy and my throat tightened. The thought of no longer seeing Vanessa was unbearable, but all this was stored within me, in the deepest recesses of my being. Indeed, the body keeps the score. But I wasn't the only one suffering. The entire family was under duress, each member with a distinct way to express their pain. Some went mute, some converted to a different religion, adopted a new way of life, and others frankly disappeared. We never heard from them again. A pure tragedy. One person I was able to closely observe was my dad. He loved Vanessa like his own daughter. The aftermath of her passing was excruciating. In Haiti, everything depends on the political situation. Your livelihood, your entertainment, your whole life takes a toll if the political and social fabric is not solid. And for my whole existence, it was never solid. How does one deal with guilt? How does one get rid of that choking feeling, blood pounding in the ears, heart thudding in the chest, continuously under shock? I can't shake it off. Most of us last heard of Haiti when dictator Jean-Claude Duvalier fled the country earlier this year. Baby Doc led the second generation of Duvalier family rule. For 29 years, they controlled the country, turning themselves into one of the richest families in the world, while Haiti's six million people ranked among the poorest. Baby Doc's exit was heralded worldwide as a chance for a dictatorship to become a democracy. But the country is now being run by the remnants of a ruling committee put in place by Baby Doc as he left. This week, security forces opened fire on a demonstration, killing seven people, wounding more than 50. There is no government as we know it. Despite the official end of the dictatorship, the shadow of the Duvaliers polluted our landscape. Exploded. The days of arbitrary arrest and harassment were not over. The new strongmen sent out to keep the peace are called the Leopards. Army shock troops organized by the American military mission in the first years of Baby Doc's rule. The stress of the democratic transition, the social fractures, the multiple coups, the never-ending insecurity, and the rising cost of living took a toll on my dad and virtually every middle-class family in Haiti. Frankly, there was no proper container to correctly grieve. The entry-level grieving process accessible would be religion, and at that time, my dad wasn't at all religious. It's unfortunate, but the brunt of the load fell on my immediate nuclear family. The political background exacerbated the tensions between my mom and my dad. My dad always wanted a daughter. 
this desire intensified after Vanessa's passing. However, my mother never wanted another kid. She was happy and satisfied with my brother and I. Relationships, more often than not, are messy. It's really difficult to conceptualize how or what various levels of dissatisfaction in a marriage can lead to certain actions. It is in this murky scenery that my dad had an affair which led to the birth of a little girl, my sister Samantha. I was a teenager at that time. As I witnessed all the fights between my parents, all I ever wanted was for us to be one again. My teenage brain defaulted to self-guilt and to blame it all on my dad's new family, precisely Samantha. I refused to interact. I refused to acknowledge that she existed. How does one deal with guilt in a world where they sentence you? How do I describe my guilt in a sentence other than I feel numb at times, sorry at times, oblivious at times? I now realize that I was so hurt that I could not understand that she had nothing to do with anything. In fact, none of us kids had nothing to do with this adult stuff. Yet, I was caught in it, and I was convinced that I, with all my might, could do something about it. My parents eventually split up. My dad went on to live with his new partner. I must say that once my parents split up, I ended up having a more fulfilling and fruitful relationship with my dad than when he was living at home. He made sure to visit every day help with school stuff, do some mini outings, provide us incredible guidance, watch us play sports and everything in between. Yet, there was still a lingering anger and sadness within me. A few years later, my dad and his wife had another daughter, my sister Sabrina. But my stance never softened. I knew of their existence. I hung out sometimes with them but I could not let go. Even though my dad was very involved in my life, I felt betrayed, as if my most precious prized possession was taken away from me. Then, in spite of me, I was propelled in the spotlight to be my mom's right-hand man. Just like the crack at the bottom of her wardrobe, the bottom of my heart is cracked, the dam broken leaking its contents within the walls of my liver, cirrhosis, scarred tissues, mirroring my scars issued by decades of suffering under the stare of their blind eye. My parents had promised us that, when it was about my brother and I, they would be cordial. They might no longer be a couple, but they'll remain our parents. All the decisions about my brother and I were taken together as a united front. I believe that I gave my all at school just because part of me thought that it would bring my parents together. I enjoyed a lot of my teenage years in Haiti, yet I feel guilt-ridden for the way I neglected my sisters and with a nagging feeling that my younger brother felt abandoned when I moved to Canada. In Canada, harsh winter conditions, new school, new people, Contending with the international student condition, 
worrying about how my parents would pay for my schooling, long hours studying, partying with new friends, starting a new adult life, frankly made my previous life seem irrelevant. It was no longer a concern. But the body still keeps the score. Trauma that is not dealt with is akin to a dormant volcano. It can erupt at any moment. I don't consider the event that happened up to that point as traumatic because, as Dr. Gabor Mate says, trauma is not what happened to you, but what happens inside of you as a result of what happened to you. Dr. Gabor Mate is one of the first Vancouver-based authors that I have read when I moved to British Columbia. It was 2008, and for the first time in my life, I had chosen where I wanted to go where I wanted to be. My parents had picked Montreal for me. I agreed, but I didn't really have much of a say. It's been 11 years that I'm yearning for a glimpse of you, for a touch, for a smile, a hug. It's been 11 years that I'm expecting a selfie from heaven. It's been 11 years that my soul is struggling, struggling to be whole again. Spirit needs room. Spirit needs space to move. God often doesn't wait for us to ask for permission. We are just moved and it's only years later that we realize that we moved. Even if I didn't truly know anyone in British Columbia, moving to Vancouver was a conscious choice. Something was calling me here. The first years were painful. While I wanted to be here, I was conflicted. As Kendrick Lamar says, there was resentment, resentment that turned into a deep depression, finding myself screaming in my tiny apartment on the brink of self-destruction. All the hurt, the unsaid, and the survivor's guilt overtaking me. I bounce around from job to job, quitting my studies, not really knowing where to head. I was at a difficult intersection. At one point, I got too broke to stay home. I needed a job. There are events that determine your trajectory. But just like a divorce, it's not the events in and of themselves. It's everything that led to them and their aftermath. On January 12, 2010, I had just started that job when I received a phone call around 3 p.m. local time. I stepped to the bathroom to take the call. A cousin of mine in Montreal called me to announce that there was an earthquake in Haiti. I brushed it off as typical Haitian news. Like, what can I possibly do for an earthquake in Haiti? I was tired and 5,000 kilometers away. I was completely disconnected. The quake struck just before dusk. Its power shook the densely populated capital, Port-au-Prince, to its core. The shaking was severe and it went on for uh, what I thought was quite a long time, but I guess it was about 15, 20 seconds. Um, it delivered one heck of a jolt um, and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased. Uh, to have made through that, it was very scary. Shoddy construction in this impoverished nation meant buildings toppled to the ground. When I got home that afternoon, I sat on my couch, my eyes transfixed on the TV screen as breaking news about the devastating earthquake unfolded. 
The reporters' voices trembled with urgency, describing the chaos and destruction that had engulfed Port-au-Prince and the nearby cities. A lump formed in my throat as I absorbed the news, my body tensing up. All I could remember was Vanessa. The body keeps the score. Like a drawn path, what is meant to be will be. Destiny took a sister from me before. I should have known. In this state of panic, I scroll through multiple channels, hoping that when I get to a new one, I would hear another set of news, to no avail. As images of collapsing buildings and frightened people flickered across the screen, a sense of panic welled up inside of me. My apartment felt suffocating, and each breath became a struggle. A cold sweat broke out on my forehead, and my hands trembled uncontrollably. The weight of the world had descended upon my shoulders. Again, thoughts raced through my mind, a chaotic whirlwind of confusion and fear. I desperately tried to comprehend the magnitude of the disaster and the impact it would have on the island. The ground beneath my feet shifted, mirroring the turmoil in my mind. My instincts scream at me to do something, anything, to escape the suffocating grip of helplessness. But where could I go? How could I act? The possibilities felt overwhelming, drowning me in a sea of indecision. My heart pounded in my chest, the rhythmic beats echoing the throb of rising panic. I fumbled for my phone, my trembling fingers struggling to find the numbers I needed. I tried to reach out for family in Haiti, but the lines were clogged with desperate calls for help. I resorted to connecting with fellow members of the diaspora, seeking solace and reassurance amidst the chaos. The fear in my friends' and family's voice mirrored my own, amplifying my sense of dread. And that's when being 5,000 kilometers away sunk in, deepening my sense of isolation. Time seemed to stretch and compress simultaneously, and the world outside my window took on an eerie stillness, as if holding its breath. My dad lived in Hamilton, Ontario at that time. I reached him, and he confirmed that the only news he had was vague. People could not tell him anything about the girls, nor his wife. The consensus was to wait hoping that someone would relay a message at one point. The wait was excruciating, painful. The call arrived late. The vibration of my cell phone shattered the semblance of tranquility of my room. By then, the TV's just muted. I can no longer listen to the incessant narrative on TV. It was that. Heart racing, my mind filled with worry. My dad is always in a hurry over the phone. He can't seem to speak without sounding rushed when he's on the phone. That day, his tone was a cause for concern. With a deep breath, my mind went to the worst-case scenario. I'd rather give myself the blow than learn the news from my dad. The Exhumé's family house on the hills of Carrefour, the house where we celebrated Baby Duck's departure, the house that saw me and Vanessa concurring its every crevices. The house where we mourn Vanessa and her mom. That house collapsed. 
a pile of rubble. No one knows about my stepmother, Idant, and her daughters, Samantha and Sabrina. My dad's voice quivered with emotion. Once again, time stood still as I struggled to comprehend the devastating news. Tears welled up in my eyes, blurring my vision. I sank back into the couch, my mind reeling. I struggled to find a glimmer of strength to cling to. I knew I had to act to find a way to help my dad. The road ahead was uncertain, and within me, I felt that only taking action could help me overcome the paralyzing grip of panic. I'll go with you, I said. But dad couldn't possibly go. He was unwell. The last bit of strength he had was to deliver me the news. The dismay still simmered beneath the surface, but I refused to let it consume me. In the face of adversity, I would find the strength to act, to rise above my own fears. Being 5,000 kilometers away was somewhat freeing. I was alone, far away. It didn't matter what I said or did. I had nothing to lose. I had already lost everything anyway. The house collapsed, but we didn't know what happened to the people inside. Were they stuck under the rubble? Were they alive? It was the biggest unknown. The next day, I told my supervisor that I had to quit. Since I started a week ago, there was no way in my mind that I would have been allowed to go for however long I needed to. This lady supervisor, I pray every day that God blesses her heart. There was no way that she'd allow me to quit. The company elected to pay my flight and allow me to leave for however long I needed. And more importantly, keep my job. I ended up leaving for a month or so. How does one find hope in the midst of despair? J'espère, I hope, espero, I am waiting. Ojalá, I'll be able to take care of dad. We'll make it through. Ojalá. A few days later, I boarded a plane to start the long journey back home. There is an undeniable patriotism that's nested in every Haitian's heart. There's a certain jubilation that usually accompanies the return of someone in exile to the motherland. It encompasses a range of feelings from joy and excitement to a deep sense of belonging and fulfillment. I have experienced it many times since I've left Haiti. I have seen it in political refugees' eyes when they come back to the land, welcomed by a joyous crowd ready to continue the fight. However, on that trip, it was the complete opposite. From showing my passport at the border to the many expressions of sympathies, I was overtaken by guilt and shame. Why am I so far? Why have I left? Why do I need to embark on that journey? I should have been there already. Why have I abandoned my mother, my motherland? This is all my fault. In my mind, it was the constant collision of I should have, I could have, I needed to. The images, the large pile of dust, the cries, the desperation, the devastation, the help, the invasion disguised as the help, the speeches, the fundraisers, the political greed and opportunist grins. Wherever I turned, 
I was confronted with my own demise. It was an indictment on my worth as a son of Haiti. It was an indictment on how I treated my sisters and how I treated my sisters. I treated my country. After 48 hours, I finally reached Port-au-Prince. We were 10, 11 days after the earthquake. A sickening mixture of rotting flesh and sewage permeated the air, clinging to surfaces and saturating the surrounding environment. The 7.0 earthquake destroyed much of the infrastructure. Multi-story concrete buildings collapsed, as well as thousands of homes, displacing about 1.5 million people, claiming the lives of more than 300,000 people. Three million people, almost a third of the population, were directly or indirectly affected. Even 10 days later, there were constant aftershocks which amplified everyone's fear. Despite those grimmest numbers and the dire situation, I wasn't there to accumulate stats. I was in Port-au-Prince for my dad, for my sisters. I got to Port-au-Prince and it was already pitch black. Without much electricity, we were at the height of the crisis. There was dust and rubbles everywhere, people crying at random moments, a certain scrambling in their steps. The only visible lights were cars, which created an ominous feel, and the stench, this bloody stench making its way to my amygdala. People could only talk about where they were when Gudugudu happened. Gudugudu is an onomatopoeia, the term that emerged to describe the earthquake in Creole. This expression, Gudugudu, describes the sound of the earthquake. If you say it ten times fast, it recreates the sound of buildings shaking in the earthquake. Gudugudu is as much a character as an event, and it gave the quake a funny and vengeful personality. The Creole language has amazing ways to characterize natural events in light ways to minimize its internalization. But we all know, the body always keeps the score. For every news flash of the rising death toll, I heard countless heroic stories of people being rescued and neighborhoods binding together to have everyone accounted for. Regardless how desperate it all felt, humanity somehow, some way, did its best to prevail. To be alive is to be in trouble, ethically and existentially. To be alive is to have a pulse and to have a why. A part of us has to die if we wish to progress, she said. My mother's sister, my auntie Therese, welcomed me home. I got the enormous chance to once again share a sleeping space with my maternal grandmother, Mami Mar. I felt 14, 15 again, comforted with a maternal presence. We slept in the backyard under a makeshift tent because everyone was terrified of aftershocks. Gudugudu was real. At that point, my grandma had completely lost her eyesight. Despite a fairly advanced dementia, we were able to communicate and have fruitful exchanges. I wear a ring that once belonged to my grandma. She gifted it to me when I was 16. Whenever she touches the ring, she remembers who I am. That first night, my grandma asked me to pray with her, something we used to do when I was a teenager. 
I used to read the prayers for her. As a fervent Catholic, we had to repeat litanies of prayers over and over and over again. She handed me her rosary beads and asked me to lead the prayer. As I'm going through the beads, Cœur sacré de Jésus, j'ai confiance en vous. Cœur immaculé de Marie, priez pour nous. Seigneur, prends pitié. Au Christ, prends pitié. As I'm going through the beads, she asked me for my hands and turned my palms towards the sky. Palms have to be up, open to the skies. I was tired from a long trip and mainly confused. I was in a confluence of worlds, an intersection, the world of Gudugudu, the reunion with my younger self, the limbo hallway of not knowing where my sisters were, the desire to act, the desire to just fall asleep, pure turmoil. So I fell silent, taken aback by her request. My grandma could feel my tension, my resistance. Out of the blue, she asked me if I ever danced rara. In Haiti, during Easter, we have a festival of traditional music called rara. It is mainly a street procession to commemorate part of the slave revolution that led to the independence. During rara, Haitians dance and march in the street while the band plays. There can be hundreds, thousands of people in the procession. The leader of the band doesn't play an instrument, but uses a whip. The whip cracks on the pavement and can be startling. I couldn't compute anything. The weight of the trip took an immense toll on my psyche. This was not what I needed. I felt trapped. Nothing made sense. I wanted to return to my cocoon, 5,000 kilometers away. I no longer belonged here. This was not my place. Yet, here I was, January 2010, in a dark, dusty backyard in Port-au-Prince, Haïti, in the aftermath of Gudugudu, the deadliest natural disaster in the island's history. Hundred US dollars in my pocket, a lost heart, and only a cell phone to access the world. The scenery in the morning was quite different from the night before. Truly night and day, I recognized the famous hills and mountains that belt the island. Haiti means high and mountainous land in the language of the Taino people, the first people who inhabited the island. Those mountains have protected us countless times from crazy hurricanes. Maybe they were tired of doing our job. You dis c'est neve ou neve qui fait la terre trembler. You dis c'est bouquet ou bouquet qui fait corps la guerre qui faut pas kakembe qui faut pas kakampe. You dis c'est mauvais point point qui fait loi manteau de temps en temps. In this moment, a serene calmness washed over me, a feeling of being at home. The sights, sounds, and scents stir a deep sense of belonging within me. The chirping of birds, the sounds of the city, and the rustling of leaves create a melody that resonated with my soul. I was home. A distant cousin of the family heard that I was in town. He offered to drive me around that day to the Exhumé's house in the hills of Carfoufeu. As we made our way from the outskirts of Port-au-Prince to the heart of the city, closer to the epicenter, the destruction became more and more apparent. The city had suffered a major blow, 
what I saw on TV paled in comparison to the magnitude of the situation. Part of the city was completely unrecognizable. The last time I had been in Haiti was two years prior. There were some areas where I was unable to orient myself because of buildings flattened like pancakes. Dust suspended in the air, people desperately still trying to get through the rubble, and the proliferation of tents. Une tentative de lessive, une attente passive, une envie maladive, un attentat qui soulève la tension, une tension au voltage, au voltage destructif auquel personne n'est attentif. Que s'est-il passé? On est au bord du rift. The proverbial chatter in the car gave rise to a profound silence, a desolate silence. The situation was beyond words, beyond the binary of good and evil. Christy, something happened a long time ago in Haiti, and uh, people may not want to talk about it. They were under the heel of the French, uh, you know, Napoleon III and whatever. And they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you'll get us free from the French. Haiti is much more complex than that. There are economic and social fault lines language and religious identities, and the deep colonial history that scarred our psyche. This was a natural disaster, and much more at the same time. The scene had a certain gravitas, something that pulled you in, a mesmerizing sadness that could only be met with silence. Through Rue Capois, Place Jérémy, the windy road by Saint-Gérard Church, Route d'Edale, the same road taken by Vanessa and her mother before their passing, I feel my body tensing up. My cousin didn't know where the house was. He had never been there. He is a cousin on my mother's side of the family. So here I am, directing my cousin through unrecognizable roads. I am trusting the road. I am trusting the windy path. I am trusting that whatever reference point I had was not destroyed. All I know is that going south on Avenue Magloire-en-Boise, the house is on the left. As the car approaches where the house would be, I look around and see nothing but a pillar lying on a pile of wreckage. I sense that it was the house but couldn't fully tell. I got out of the car and got close to the pillar. The number 340 is still on it. It was the house. That pillar was one of the pillars supporting the balcony where my grandparents stood on February 7, 1986 to celebrate freedom from the dictatorship. This was the last piece of the house left, leaning on a tree. The house sat on a long, narrow, rectangular plot of land. The mountain of debris was insurmountable. The next-door neighbor, whose house suffered somewhat a similar fate, but had some functional areas remaining, recognized me. They invited me to go through their backyard to access my grandma's backyard. As I stood in the backyard on a pile of debris, I recalled all the fond memories that I had here, the multiple functions that that house had fulfilled. It was the family house. It was Vanessa's home. It was a multi-generational home, aunties, uncles, grandparents all lived there. It's been my dad's bakery, 
It's been my uncle's medical clinic. It was the place of epic basketball games between cousins. It was the birthplace of my political language. It was where I played my first notes on the piano. It was the place of my grandma's lovely labui banan, banana porridge. As I stood in the backyard on a pile of debris, the air was filled with my dad's saxophone. Like a love supreme, he would travel on several chords, double-chinned, pushing the air out, the saxophone resting on his belly to produce what is really the soundtrack of my youth. That house was where my dad was ever truly happy. My parents fought a lot about not owning a home. During the fights, it would come up. My mom was upset that we were renting, and with my dad's financial situation, rent would suffer. Every now and then, he would propose that we move to the Kafufuri home. His argument was, it is free, we won't pay a dime. But now, I realize that it was the place where he was free. It was where he was himself, his home. As I walked on the debris, Surveying the backyard, I found a book, Les Racines du Sous-Développement en Haïti, The Roots of Haiti's Underdevelopment, one of my dad's books. I used to see that book on his bookshelf or his car in Haiti. I bent down to take it, dusted off, mechanically browsed through it. In one of the pages, a four by six inches school picture of Samantha. And then it dawned on me, this house, now fragmented in millions of dusty pieces, was also Samantha and Sabrina's home. This house was also my stepmother's home. Were they home when Gudugudu happened? Gudugudu was recorded at 4.53 on January 12, 2010. It lasted 35 seconds. Depuis maintenant une décennie, je renie leur décès, je revis la séquence des faits, me bat, me défait, je ne fais que ressasser ces 35 secondes du 12 janvier, 16h53 minutes et 10 secondes. I'm doing my best to piece things together. People must have been home. It was close to being dark, the sun sets early near the equator. It was a Tuesday, a school day, so no reason to party or venture during nighttime. They must have been home. From that moment, it became an intense search to locate my sisters and their mother. I drove to five to six hospitals in Port-au-Prince to look for them. All I could think about is I need to find Edant, Samantha, and Sabrina for my dad. I cannot call without news. I need to at least have something. Then I received a phone call from one of her family members. Edant is in Lekai, the Keys, a city three to four hours south of Port-au-Prince. She's at the hospital there. Her cousin, after the quake, made the trip to the capital and found them. What about the girls? It's Imedamio. Simonio? Bon, mon cher, Simonio... The kids, man. The kids. Simonio. Yo mouri. Yo mouri, oui. The kids are dead. 
I was four hours away from my stepmother, so close, yet so far. It was already 4 p.m. There was no way to venture on that road so late in the day. I got on the road the next day as I embarked on the journey to the south, leaving behind the bustling streets of Port-au-Prince. I ventured towards the coastline where the road opens up to reveal the glistening waters of the Caribbean Sea. The drive is accompanied by the rhythmic sound of crashing waves filling the air. The sea stretched out endlessly, its vast expanse emerging with the horizon, as if inviting me to explore its mysteries. In some stretches, the road ascends slightly, providing elevated viewpoints that offer panoramic vistas of the Caribbean Sea. From this vantage point, I couldn't help but notice how small I was, how irrelevant I was, how insignificant I was. Mother Nature can be prone to pompous superiority. Her beauty clashed with how I felt inside. After unleashing a harrowing earthquake, I registered this as the ultimate middle finger. I arrived at Hôpital Immaculée Conception and found my stepmother aidant. She had suffered a major burn on her left leg. I never had more than casual conversations with that woman. I did not know her. Everything she knew about me was through my dad, if he ever shared anything of the sort with her. Anything I knew about her was that I considered her my enemy, the one who participated in the destruction of my family, the one who stopped making me whole. Now we are face to face, her, half-naked, lying in a dark room of a hospital, her left leg with third-degree burn, me, with nothing but despair, and the shaky realization that I need to keep her whole. She hugged me. She was happy to see me. This took me aback. Everything seemed fine for that brief moment, but I looked perplexed. I did not dare ask about Samantha and Sabrina. With so much lucidity, she read my questioning eyes. She told me that she doesn't remember much about how she got here, but the kids... The kids... The kids, Simonio, back on I don't know my child, she said. I had so many questions. I felt like a reporter probing for information from a politician. Should I press for more? How did she make it there? What happened before? But it didn't matter how she made it there. It didn't matter because thousands of others were in the same position. There was no time to ask questions or even answer them. The Brazilian doctor in charge spoke to me. A dot has been there for a while. As a diabetic lady injured for 12 days with a burnt leg, the odds of keeping the leg were minimal. Either they amputate her or she has to leave the hospital overwhelmed with patients in need. The onus of making the decision fell on my shoulder. My stepmother was in no capacity mentally to even juggle with the different scenarios. My dad was thousands of kilometers away, numb with fear. The only thing that mattered to him at that time was that I made sure to call my stepmother Tati Edant, Auntie Edant, instead of directly by her first name. Even in the most dire situations, one should never forget good education. All her family was expecting me to decide to logically show up 
as the prodigal son. The pressure was immense, unbearable. I had six pairs of eyes on me and my stepmother lying in a dark room of Hôpital Immaculé Conception. Nothing about this felt immaculate. Je suis parti voir une tante. Je l'ai retrouvée à deux minutes sous une tente. Une aide, elle attend. Une main, elle attend. Cette humaine, dit-on, inhumaine ce qu'on entend. Amid the chaos and tension of the moment, another sensation gripped me, an overwhelming surge of guilt. It swept through my body like a torrential wave, threatening to consume me entirely. Every fiber of my being screamed with conflicting emotions, torn between the ingrained animosity of our relationship and the call of my conscience. It was a battle of conflicting loyalties, of opposing forces tearing at my core. As I watched her in pain from the injured leg, from losing her children, a knot form in my stomach, a visceral reminder of the gravity of the situation, the weight of responsibility bore down on my shoulders as I realized that the life of another human being, no matter the circumstances, now rested in my hands. Images of past conflicts flashed before my eyes, memories etched deep within my consciousness. The body keeps the score. I was propelled back to that night of April 23, 1987. Vanessa was brought to the hospital. She was alive. For a brief moment, she could have been saved. I could have had my cousin with me, and who knows how my life would have turned out. The guilt intensified, permeating my every cell. It whispered to me, reminding me of my own humanity and my own mortality. My guilt asked me to question the cycle of violence that I witnessed, the dictatorship, the violent fights between my parents, the countless lifeless bodies left on the road, at the coups, the empty gun shells collected in my backyard mornings after mornings. My guilt asked me to transcend the boundaries of enmity and embrace the possibility of redemption. I asked the doctor how long we had to make a decision. 24 hours. That's all he could give me. So I went through my contacts and started dialing like a madman to find a way to get anti-edant away from Haiti. With each passing second, the weight of the decision grew heavier. I grappled with the consequences, both immediate and far-reaching. Am I acting out of fear? Am I betraying my younger self? Could I live with the guilt if I choose to abandon her? At that moment, with all these questions colliding within me, the following question unlocked everything within me. Would I allow guilt to paralyze me, or would I let compassion guide my actions? I had 24 hours. They might still amputate her leg, but not until I try everything in my power. In that fateful instant, I made a choice, a choice that defied the boundaries of conflict and embraced compassion. J'écris ce texte un 12 janvier et j'entends encore pleurer, crier. Je revois les rides de son front attristé, les replis de son visage peiné et j'ai peur d'oublier ceux qui nous ont quittés. Through my calls, I found someone who knew someone who knew someone. They found a way to connect us to an ambulance plane that would land in the Bay of Port-au-Prince the next day. The U.S. government would provide help to people in need. The only catch 
was that you had to pay a fee and more importantly, have a valid U.S. visa. Through a series of people who knew people who knew people, we managed to get enough money to pay for the plane. The visa remained an issue. Every respectable Haitian, within a minimum of financial means, has a passport with a valid U.S. or Canadian visa. At all times, you never know. It's part of having your affairs in order. My stepmother had her purse with her during the quake. Within it, a valid passport with what felt like a pot of gold, a valid, brand new U.S. visa received a few days before the earthquake. 24 hours after the ultimatum, she was on a plane to Atlanta as it was one of the places in the U.S. that was receiving people. I felt relieved. Unfortunately, it was short-lived. Gangrene set in and her leg was amputated shortly after she arrived. She stayed in the U.S. for 10 years, no longer the same woman. Grief, solitude, and the new life got the best of her. She passed away in January 2020. My stepmother didn't have a chance to say goodbye to her children. Samantha and Sabrina's bodies were found in the rubble after their mother made it to Atlanta. Once again, a natural disaster took people away from me. Once again, I am ridden with remorse and regret. Once again, my family is fragmented. Once again, I survived to realize that heaven is a heartbeat away. My dad wanted to replace Vanessa twice. Maybe it wasn't meant to be. To Samantha and Sabrina, I can only write. Memories are my remedy, writing my therapy. I write because that's my only way to fight, to dance with my ghosts. I write to walk my paraplegic thoughts. Memories keep me alive. Memories also keep me hostage. I am holding on to you, afraid to forget. I am holding on to you as guilt consumes me to have remained alive twice. I am holding on to you, haunted. I am unsure what trick destiny will play next. Will I have to sacrifice my own children to break the spell? Overwhelmed by this burden, the fault lines of my heart colliding. Why am I coughing? Why am I choking? When it is you who is buried. Everything I wish to say to you I have to write. The sound of dirt raining on your coffin. A metronome for my heart. Hammering home that I'll never see you again. I've been praying for 13 years to one day see you again. As I left Port-au-Prince, I felt like I had taken a trip down the belly of a monster deep in the underworld, dragging my feet through the airports to make my way back 5,000 kilometers away. I returned to Vancouver three weeks later with the Winter Olympics starting. I could not believe that people could party be happy in the streets. I felt disconnected, empty inside, angry at the world. I sunk into a deep depression, completely absorbed by the survival mode that I was in. My family and those around me championed my efforts, my resolve. They made me feel love, but I had no proper container to grieve. I felt alone, unhappy, and numb. I knew the pattern. It was obvious that I was sinking. I just didn't know how to stop, except to write, 
So I kept on writing letters every year on January 12th. I vowed to write a letter to my sisters to talk to them. That's the container that I choose to deal with my pain, to grieve as best as I could. Whenever I write letters, I am immediately confronted with myself, with my deep shadows. The feedback is immediate. Through letters, I can explore the truth. Stories are things we store in the vault of our heart. When we tell stories, we share what we have stored within. When we know our history, or her story, or their story, we get to know ourselves at a deeper level. We get to know the many intersections of our lives. Now I understand what my maternal grandmother, Mami Mao, meant when she asked me if I ever danced rara. She was pointing me to the intersection. There is something quite impressive that they do during rara processions at every intersection. Before the band crosses, the leader ventures to the intersection and cracks the whip three times in each of the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. The thought behind that is to scare bad spirits away, but also to open spiritual portals. In a very pragmatic way, we understand how charged crossroads are. We put stop signs, traffic lights, and we have specific rules for them to establish who has the priority, which event will happen when, etc. In a metaphysical way, crossroads are also charged. At the crossroads of our lives, we have to pay attention, know where we are going, and also be flexible. The intersection the place where there is a balance between resistance and renewal, and it can only be observed in silence, in reverence, at the crossroads of our lives, at the intersection of several worlds. We have to go through life with our hands open, palm up, open to the skies, to receive. When we clench our fists, we cannot receive. We can pound, we can fight, but we are not open. We punch things away from us, Releasing, requesting, and receiving require open hands. We ought to remain soft, gentle. Hard things break, soft things never do. And then, only then, can we find what we truly value, the truth. For 12 years, I've written poems after poems to thread the needle. Now, in year 13, I am ready to embrace this story as part of my past, I am ready to embrace who I am. I am ready to embrace my surviving story. I am ready to embrace the truth, my truth. I've always wanted to be home again, to be whole again. Have you ever had the longing feeling of carrying something within you, feeling it close to you, yet you know it's far, far away from you at the same time? Just like tears falling on my cheeks, making their way to bring the salt back to the ocean, water within me, water that makes me, yet water that is seas and oceans away from me. 
standing on the shore of the Gulf of Guinea, I felt this. Being somewhere I've always wanted to be, the land of my ancestors, where I am from, yet longing to be where I've always lived, where home is. Watching the ocean, waves crashing on the shore, I understood then the deep nostalgia in Brazilian folk songs. Saudade. Saudade, like the buzzing sound in the womb, comforting, buried in the depth of my mother's entrails. Saudade. Longing to be whole again, longing to feel again, longing to heal, longing to be held again, longing to be seen again. Saudade. Saudade. J'espère. Espero. Ojalá. I'll see you again. Saudade. Saudade. My heart beats to the rhythm of the drums following the feet of the unsi. Saudade. Letting myself fall. Resistance is futile. Renewal takes a while. Let this fire consume me so I can be born again like the phoenix rising from its ashes. Saudade. Siminoglo. C'est où moi La sirène, bon moi l'homme. Saudade. Like the lighthouse on the shore, intermittently bathing in the light through the darkness night. Saudade. From ignorance, lead me to truth. From darkness, lead me to light. Saudade. A recurring conversation I have with my students is about how to find who you are. And my answer is always the same. Go out of your usual place, meet people, go to intersections, and let accidents happen. Life is a series of crazy accidents. I am where I am by accident, not by carefully planning what I wanted to accomplish. I studied forensic science, and in one of my classes on forensic evidence, there is something that struck me. We humans leave traces everywhere fingerprints. When two cars get into a collision, the residue from one car is transferred to the other. Same thing for us. When we come into contact with other people, we leave our fingerprints, our marks on them, positive or negative. There is a transfer that happens. And in order to find out who we are, we need to get in contact with other people. We need to have accidents. There is a song in Creole by a famous band called Bookman Experience. The song is called C'est Creole Nouye, We Are Creole. And there's a line that says, Dans ma chée, pour m'aider chercher, moi contre un petit ange qui dit moi, C'est Creole Nouye. Essentially, it's by walking, searching, traveling, that we will meet an angel. And that angel will tell us who we are. Yet, the song continues. L'emrite, mwen gade andan mwen, mwen vin weseyon verite. Once we meet this angel who proclaims who we are, we have to go back within and analyze to find out that it is true, indeed. And that's when we know that the answer was within us all along. Se kriol nouye. I am complex, I am simple, I am guilty, I am innocent, I have heard before, 
I've been heard before. I have loved before. I've been loved before. I am a fighter. I am a liberator. I live at the intersection. I am charged. I am energy. I am. We are. Somos. All at once. S'écriol nuit. S'écriol moi. Our failures reside at the borders, the limitations of our experience. Don't mistake wounds for mouths. Don't speak out of your wounds. At time, I have spoken out of my wounds, mistaking them for mouths. During my teenage years, I vowed to take on a pilgrimage. I wanted to celebrate my 33rd birthday in Tibet in recuse meditation. I wanted to do this as a sign to find myself. Little did I know that I had to go back to the scene where my consciousness unlocked, where I experienced my deepest pain twice to find myself. Some part of me had to die to transform into what I am today. Some part of you needs to die for you to transform into what you could be. As Young Pueblo says, I spent years unaware that I was running away from myself. For far too long, I was unaware that the only way for life to improve, for my mind to finally experience ease, was for me to explore and embrace the anxious unknown that dwelled within. Thank you for listening to the Teach Reach podcast. This podcast is produced by Dr. Lemstein Productions, mixing and editing by Ian Lamb. If you are enjoying this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give us a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at teachreach underscore podcast. For our regular listeners, we truly appreciate your support. Thank you. You can find more information about our podcast at teachreach.podbean.com. Until next time, Kembela Palagi. Hang in there. Don't give up. I truly hope that you enjoyed this episode. This episode contains references to the following. The book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk. Young Pueblo's book, Clarity and Connection. The TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story by Shimamanda Adichie. Mortal Man by Kendrick Lamar. News clip on the end of the dictatorship and Jean-Claude Duvalier's departure is from West 57th. News clip on the earthquake is from ABC News Australia. The disgusting commentary by Pat Robertson about Haiti's pact with the devil was made during a fundraiser. The clip is from the Young Turks. The song with the poems is Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. Bookman Experience's song, C'est Creole Nouye. Zekle's song, Chanté L'Amou. The Rara clip is from Rara Sounds from the Haitian Countryside by Radio is a Foreign Country. Track 7, Pavlis Englendo, We Don't Want Criminals.